Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We fell off a bit on bonus episodes at the end of 2021 because we were all dealing with a giant wave of -of end-of-the-year work. But we'll be back shortly with discussions of The Book of Boba Fett and the new State of Star Wars and recommendations for 2021 TV shows that are still worth catching up on. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias. Uh, Genevieve is taking a little end of year breather as we dive into our top 10 films. Well, at least the first half of our top 10 films of 2021. As a TV editor at Vulture, she does not have as much time to watch films as she would like to because she's watching TV. And, uh, you know, when I sat down to evaluate my top 10 of the year, guys, I felt like I was a little bit in the same boat. I watched more TV this year than I have in uh, a really long time, uh, mostly because of my job, but in part because it was just such a strange year for cinema. We saw more than ever movies debuting in theaters, but maybe they would also uh, hit a streaming platform at the same time or a week later, or in Netflix's case, uh, they would hit two theaters on uh, two different coasts, but be considered uh, to be releasing at a certain time. And then they would come out three weeks later on Netflix. Or uh, maybe they would hit streaming and then hit theaters. <laughs> it was just, it was a little difficult at times to keep up with exactly what it meant to release a movie in 2021. 
And as much as we all love the theatrical experience, we're all still worried a little bit about, uh, you know, quarantine and our health and the safety of theaters. And that fluctuated so much throughout the year. What did 2021 feel like for you in terms of, of seeing movies? Do you, do you felt like you kept up? Do you felt like you have a, an idea of sort of what the field was this year? I felt there was a little window where we were kind of getting back to normal uh, in between in between uh, classic COVID and and, and the Delta variant. <laughs> uh, I remember going to see the latest Purge movie, which spoiler number one on my list for this year. No, it's not, but it's but, but you know, I never miss a Purge movie. I walked in with a mask on, and like there's no one else in the theater wearing masks. Like you know what? You're right. Masks are done. We're done with masks. I'm gonna sit here without a mask and watch. The Purge and like, you know, a week and a half later, <laughs> we're back to wearing masks. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of I, an ironic movie to watch during the the short window of we're not wearing masks anymore, since masks are such a huge thing in The Purge. That's true. I, I'd never even considered that. There's a lot of a lot of layers to this uh, anecdote, isn't there? Um, but uh, <laughs> but I don't know. It, it is. I, I'm not sure what normal is going to look like, even if the pandemic ends, because I feel like. You know, I hope, you know, it's a whole other podcast episode, really. But I feel like I feel more encouraged than I was maybe a year ago about, about the viability of, of movie theaters, if not always necessarily the variety of movies you'll see there. But I feel like, you know, this sort of hybrid model, movie watchers like it in some degrees, studios like it. Uh, so I think we're still figuring out what what this, you know, availability is going to look like. So you think that maybe it might be a mistake to shift a once lucrative theatrical window and uh, to in order to embrace a streaming system that is, that that uh, <laughs> is not shown profitability in any way, shape, or form from yeah, any platform. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, that, but I mean, at the same time, studios and theaters have both been complaining about declining attendance rates for more than a decade now. We've been through the you know the luxury theater experience and the adults only theater experience and the please feel free to text theater experience and the three D fat you know, as theaters have, have rapidly tried to evolve to be as tempting as just watching a movie at home mm -hmm. with the lower cost and lower interaction with humanity that that and the lower unpredictability that that involves. It seems to me that this kind of switch to a hybrid thing is, you know, in part, it's about keeping eyeballs on your product during a very unpredictable time. But it also just seems to me that studios are experimenting with what they can get away with in an era where releasing a, a film in theaters isn't a guarantee of profitability. And, and plus, we have this whole thing where like something like The Power of the Dog might not be distributed without Netflix, which means it'll play theaters, sort of. But the big deal will be when it appears on Netflix. But, you know, does that film get seen without Netflix or some other streaming service behind it. I mean, it's there's a whole. Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 a, it's a weird. It's a weird time. Yeah, this definitely feels like. I mean, the most massive can of worms there is. I mean, because this is the ground under our feet is is shifting dramatically and constantly um, in terms of how we see movies and and uh, how movies are getting made and what movies are getting made. I mean, that is all very much up for grabs if not up for grabs then, then certainly changing models are changing so very quickly and we're having to adjust to that but all of that said and all with all of the caveats aside about the the weirdness of going back to uh, movies which i did pretty robustly i have to say once i was vaccinated i had a great time at the movies this year and it felt like a real 
year in a way that last year did not. Last year had plenty of fine films, but a lot of films were held back and a lot of film festivals were canceled. And it seemed like we were kind of going to get a sort of a drip drab of smaller films. Uh, you know, certain titles were just being, it just, this, it felt like sort of the damn burst this year. And it was just this massive amount of high, high quality films to consider. You know, we had a very robust can lineup. So plenty of films from there. It really just the last few months from like, from like September to December, I just felt like I was just cramming in as many movies as I could. And in so many of them, you know, I loved. So I'm very happy with my top 10 list and very super regretful of the things that are on my honorable mention list and super regretful of the things I, I have didn't get around to seeing. So it just seemed like a, a great abundance of films that I considered very, very good. So uh, I had a good time with the movies and it was good to be back. It was good to go to movies again, e- even with even if I had to sit there wearing a mask. It felt nice, you know, to be in my home again and not, not in my literal home, but my home that is <laughs> a movie theater. And, you know, Tasha, I mean, uh, you, you say you haven't kept up with movies as well as you'd, as you'd like, but you probably have. There are just, just so many of them. I, I have a list of, of things I still need to get to, and, and I dropped it into our chat we have before this uh, podcast began. And, and Tasha, not knowing what it was, assumed it was my top 10 list for the year. No, it looked uh, more like a top 25 yeah, list. I, I know. But, well, uh, yes. I was trying. I was. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's, there's always, always more that you can get to. Yeah, I I mean, I often, because so many of the awards contenders for the year are held back until November, December, I often end the year still with a handful that I never got to and that I sort of regret. But many of those films are also often the heaviest, longest, most depressing films of the year. And I I always do hit a point where I just feel like I want to tap out on movies about genocide and uh, rape and the hideous miscarriages of justice that happen in a capitalist society and how we're all going to die because of fill in the blank environmental concern and so forth and so on. This year feels unusual in that I still have what feels like a really long list of films that I want to get to that are a lot like the films actually on my top 10 list. They're, they're idiosyncratic. They're auteur driven. They have strong, weird visions. They're unusual stories of, of kinds that I haven't necessarily seen a lot of before. And they don't necessarily all feel like they're about, you know, the end of somebody's life or emotional life. I'm sure some of the things I never got to are on your top 10 list. Some of the things Keith never got to are definitely on my top 10 list. So let's just dive right into those. Scott, why don't we start with you? We're going to, what we're going to do is start with uh, our number 10 of the year and count up to our number one of the year. We're going to split this into two episodes for bite-sized viewing. We know it's, uh, it's everybody's still recovering from the holidays uh, as these drop, and you could probably use something uh, a little tighter than our, our increasingly rambly uh, events have gotten. So we're going to uh, get through our, our 10 through 6 on this episode, and then on the next one, we'll hit 5 to 1. And we will also cover our honorable mentions uh, once we've we've done our lists. Scott, let's start with you. What's your number 10 of the year? Uh, my number 10 is Days, which is the new film by Sai Ming Liang. Uh, he's a director who I've loved and have written about since 
the year 2000, right? When, when he put out, or 2001, maybe. One of those two years he put out What Time Is It There, which is my favorite of his movies. Uh, but he's also done films like The River and The Hole and Goodbye Dragon Inn. They're all, it's slow cinema, I guess, as you would call it, uh, but also with, you know, mo- moments of humor and, and moments of uh, a real transcendent beauty. And his films have darkened a, a lot of the comedy that was kind of laced throughout his films uh led by this uh, his fame is kind of muse lee kang shang who has kind of a buster keaton quality a lot of that is kind of gone from his more most recent films which are a little bit darker but days the little bit of lightness of days is that it has a weird romantic spirit you just have to kind of wait for it <laughs> you know so so this film is all about patience from uh the viewer and, and kind of you know it's about Li kang Cheng plays um you know someone who is in uh, hong kong feeling just who is uh, is dealing with with chronic pain and you see him dealing with that and getting treated for that in a million different ways and then there's another character who's this young sort of laotian immigrant in bangkok and the two of them we see them the two of them living separately doing doing their routine separately and then they finally do cross paths and when they cross paths the loneliness the intense loneliness that we feel in both parts of that story you know is relieved in a way and and uh in a way that's uh, to me uh, absolutely beautiful and touching and unusual for a sign mingling film so this is there's this part of this is, that is very much what he does and then a little bit that is a part that is a departure and uh, i think it's quite a, quite a beautiful film it's called days if you want to check it out it's like a it's a grasshopper films put it out i think you, i think they have some sort of virtual cinema thing going for it but uh i really like it so if you're a fan of his work i highly recommend that film days i need to catch up because i really like the whole and what time is it there and goodbye dragon and scott gets frustrated when i say this but i checked out after the wayward cloud which was uh he didn't uh, like the he didn't, he didn't like very the pineapple. frustrating he did not like the watermelon <laughs> effing <laughs> which uh, i don't get but whatever no i i, I love that <laughs> Just, just, just the way it was depicted. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not enough people got it on with watermelons in that film for Keith. So, uh, what, what, what about you, Keith? What's your, what's your number ten? Uh, my number ten is a film called The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie uh, Gyllenhaal. It is, it is her uh, directorial debut. Uh, it is an adaptation of an Eleanor Ferrante uh, novel in which, um, in, in this version, uh, Olivia Colman plays a professor who is on, goes to holi- on, on holiday on a Greek island, just wants to be left alone, uh, but also finds her, but instead finds herself being drawn into some family drama of some other vacationers. I don't want to spoil too much. And also drawn back into her own past in ways that make some interesting connection between her past, her present, and and uh, uh, the experience of, of motherhood in particular but also just of uh of you know what it's like to reflect on on a, on a life that took some turns along the way uh, again there's a lot you know it's not, it's not literally driven by spoilers but i don't want to spoil too much about this film except i, I think olivia coleman this is i don't know performance of the year way up there i mean she's she's so good in this movie tasha how about you my number 10 is a film that we did on the the next picture show so we we talked about it at uh, great length it's really stuck with me over time. Leox Carrick's Annette, the musical starring uh, Marianne Cotillard and uh, Adam Driver. Boy, that film, it's a lot to contend with. Uh, I went back and rewatched large chunks of it just because, you know, as a musical, it operates around these musical set pieces, some of which I think are, are stronger and more memorable than others. 
obviously don't recommend watching it in chunks the first time through. It's a contiguous story and it, it has a, a big, big emotional build over time. But Leox Carrox just has a way of, of creating these sequences, much like the, the well-vaunted accordion chorus in Holy Motors, these musical sequences that just capture a mood and each one of them is kind of built around different designs. The song where the two leads dance drunkenly and endangeringly on the deck of a ship in a thunderstorm, which is being rear projected behind them. And it's extremely stylized and, and literally pretty theatrical, stage-like looking. It's just... You know, it's such an act of, of cinematic brio. It's, it's such an act of almost defiance of what people think movies are supposed to look like in the interest of capturing a mood. And it's just really struck me and stuck with me both as a really unusual musical in a year that was really strong on musicals, but also just a story like none that I've ever seen before told by actors who I've seen a lot of before, for the most part, doing new and different things. And then that ending, you know, that that last sequence is just one of the most uh, daring and mesmerizing things that I saw in, in cinema this year. Scott is is nodding, which I'm not used to him doing when I talk. Is that <laughs> it, is your are you having neck problems there, Scott? <laughs> I always nod in approval about the things that you uh, say, say, Tasha. <laughs> Uh, but yes, Annette, that one is a stream on Prime Video. I don't think we're necessarily going to hit where you can find every single film on this list. But since so many of them this year were commissioned by uh, Netflix or Amazon Studios or Warner Brothers, and, and thus many of them are on HBO Max, we may point out from time to time where you can find specific things. So yeah, if you if you want to check that out, or if you did check it out, you just want to revisit uh, one of the most unusual endings of the year, there it is uh, sitting there on Amazon waiting for you. So yeah, that's Annette at my number 10. Scott, what's your number nine? Uh, my number nine, and I don't think this will have you nodding your head in approval, Tasha, <laughs> uh, is uh, The Card Counter by Paul Schrader. She's nodding as to say, yes, this, this will not meet my approval. But anyway, uh, The Card Counter, and I, I wrote this uh, about this in the reveal, our, our newsletter, our unstoppable newsletter, that um, it was my favorite movie-going experience of the year. And, and I think it had to do with feeling a level of concentration, feeling like you're in the room with this person who is in a prison of their own making. And that's kind of the Paul Schrader feeling. It's also kind of the Robert Brisson uh, feeling, <laughs> which Paul Schrader is ripping off. But, uh, you know, this is a film starring Oscar Isaac as a former serviceman who has taken up gambling, poker in particular, and is very good at it and is getting staked to do it. But he was also kind of running from a past in which he was a torturer at Abu Ghraib uh, prison. And, and, it, and it felt to me just like, you know, just like First Reformed, Schrader's last film, such a companion piece, but also such a movie that was willing to take what Schrader does and engage with the world as we know it, you know, and, it's, and that's been something that I've been kind of obsessed with and, and it will be a part of my top five list is a very important move. There's a film in my top five list that does it too and kind of gets the nod for me as well for this. But I, I, I do think that that films that have the courage to engage and to say something provocative, you know, even if flawed and the card counter is certainly not a perfect film about the world in which we live about politics 
I think those end up holding up well over time, and and this one held up for me well over for me now, obviously. So uh, the card counter is my number nine. Yeah, I wouldn't flaw you for for putting it on your top ten. It was it was not for me. The the flaws were pretty big for me, but I just always find that when I'm making a top ten of the year list, it's almost never my favorite films it's the films that i that excited me most you know it, it's never the films that comforted me it's the films that that challenged me either narratively or from a filmmaking perspective and while i had as obviously a lot of issues with that film which we discussed at length i can certainly see where it's a film that is both challenging you politically and is just doing some really uh distinctive and interesting things on a directorial uh debut so you know while while it ain't on my list where we're not going to see it uh coming up again on my number one um i'm not surprised to see it on yours and uh, i i certainly respect it as a choice thanks and i agree with what you're just what you just said too and that that's kind of card card and uh and days are two movies that would be rating wise if i were to rate them would be would have in common you know the rating in common with many of my honorable mentions but kind of snuck onto the list for that exact reason uh keith what is your number nine so I'm going to engage in a bit of deja vu here. My my number nine is a directorial debut of, of a person who's better known for for acting. Uh, you can find it on Netflix. I think that's where the it's adapted from a novel. Uh, I think that's where the similarities to the to the Lost Daughter end, though. It, it's Passing, which we covered on the show, uh, which is uh, Rebecca Hall's adaptation of the Nella Larson uh, novel uh, set in uh, Harlem of the 1920s. Uh, I, I it's it really I saw this at all well, quote unquote at Sundance virtually at Sundance uh in, in January and it really stuck with me I was looking forward to it getting out in the world where other people could see it and I really enjoyed our conversation about it which I think deepened my appreciation of of how how much ambiguity in this how 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 many themes are at play in this but it plays like someone who's really uh, it, it's very careful. It's very precise. It's very well thought out. But there's also, I mean, thanks to, thanks to uh, Ruth Nega and, and Tessa Thompson, it's so alive. And there's, there's the performances are so are so vivid and 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 so full of uh, human emotion and flaws. Uh, I, I think it's a really good movie, and and it's 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 one I was I've uh, you know seen a couple of times now, and and uh, look forward to seeing it again someday. Tasha, how about you? Um, my number nine is one that I, I regret we didn't really have a great pairing for or, or room to discuss it on the show. There's so many things that I really want to dig into with you guys. And if it just happens to fall at the wrong time or there's a more prominent pick we don't get to. But this one in particular just felt like maybe it went a little under the radar for me. Again, in a, a year of musicals, I promise you that not everything on my list is uh, musicals. But it felt like musicals were what moved me most in the in the theaters and at home this year. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut, Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a Netflix film starring Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, the uh, man who created, composed, wrote Rent. And the show itself, uh, we, we had a great review of it on Polygon written by one uh, Noel Murray. You may have heard of him. Mm. Hmm. And he dug really, really usefully and helpfully into the the long tail history of that show, which is something that Jonathan Larson himself wrote and developed over time to kind of document his struggles in trying to create a science fiction musical stage show and uh, bring it to the stage in a meaningful way before Rent. It's his... 
I'm turning 30 anxiety story as he tries to evaluate his place in the uh, hyper competitive world of New York theater. It's very much like the, uh, the naive souls in rent. He is trying to decide whether creating art is more important than, uh, you know, living in a normal way, like a normal person. But I think that where rent ultimately kind of falls down when it when it shows you what they've been creating, what they've spent all of this time and energy and effort on, Tick Tick Boom puts together an idea of what one man can create on the side, a thing that can be beautiful and meaningful and still just have no potential for going anywhere and can cost him everything. It's something that started out. You know, uh, a lot of us people <laughs> that have kind of aged out of rent appreciation talk about how these entitled 20 somethings that, that feel like they shouldn't have to pay rent because they're, they're creating art and they're living the bohemian life and it's important. It becomes harder and harder to sympathize with them over time. And as Tick Tick Boom started out, I kind of had the same feeling. It's, it's a little bit difficult for me at my age to sympathize with somebody who thinks his life is absolutely ending because he's about to turn 30 without, hmm. uh, becoming a worldwide sensation. But the story over time, the songs are so compelling and the, the way they express the excitement of making art is so compelling. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, really surprised me over time as he kind of stretches out into the experience of being a director and starts making more and more surprising and engaging and unusual choices with what he's putting on the screen, how he's putting it on the screen. And Andrew Garfield's uh, performance, I think, is just tremendous. I thought he was one of the best performances of the year. So Tick, Tick, Boom, I, re I regret that Genevieve isn't here because uh, I seem to often have to prove my bona fides as a human person that is capable of emotion. Uh, this movie moved me. Um, it made, yeah, it made me cry. I'm not ashamed of that. There's a sequence in the middle of it that is pure self-indulgence for, for Broadway nuts that made me cry because it's so beautifully constructed for specifically for Broadway nuts. But where the show goes, where the story goes, even if it's a little predictable in a way, I think it's just really well executed. So yeah, tick, tick, boom. I went in expecting very little and I came out just absolutely loving it. That's why it's my number nine. It's on my list of shame. I need to get to that one. Uh, I recommend it, but I also recommend <laughs> that you give it space from the 500 other musicals that came out this year. Hmm. Scott, what are you looking at at number eight? Okay, uh, so uh, my number eight is a film that I saw all the way back right before the pandemic started in, at True False in uh, March 2020. It was released this year, and it has just stayed with me that entire time because it, uh, it's a film called The Viewing Booth. Uh, it's a documentary. It's an Israeli documentary by uh, Ranan Alexandrowitz, and it is a pretty simple, short documentary in which uh, the director sets up what is basically kind of a lab-like space and he invites people to look at clips of uh you know like documentary clips of life in uh the palestinian territories and one person one viewer in particular a uh, jewish american student named maya levy becomes the focus of the film and she is asked to share her thoughts and reactions about these clips as someone who is you know pro-israel you know in terms of her just <laughs> general worldview and, and what strikes you when you watch the film is that it, it's just about how unpersuadable 
we are by images if, by, and by arguments about, about how hard, when our views are calcified, our view, you know, and that's, that's something that is certainly not unique to this woman, but to any, anyone, we toss out the things that bother us, that, that might, might trouble or upend our point of view. And uh, we, you know, cling to the, maybe the small things that do, you know, affirm our view. And it was just, you know, it seems like kind of a, an obvious point to be making, but I, I, I don't know. It's just in this year in which 800,000 Americans died of a pandemic and you can't get people to take it seriously. You think back about the viewing booth, <laughs> you think about, you know, this film continues to stay with you. I was shaken by it. And I think it's a film that does not look down upon or, or, or you know, this, this subject really it looks at her as a figure of, of great complexity and fascination. And uh, I think it's just a, a movie making experiment that works like gangbusters. So uh, I love it. If you can try to check it out, it's worthwhile. And it's like I said, it's short. Uh, it's the viewing booth. Keith, what about what's your number eight? Uh, another film we covered on the show, which is uh, The Green Knight, David Lowry's uh, uh, lyrical expansion, reinterpretation, revisiting, not quite sure uh, how to describe it, of, of, of a famous medieval poem about uh, set in, in the kingdom of, of King Arthur. You know, I, I think it's another one where... You know, the more we talked about it on the show, the more we found. The, you know, we we each kind of brought our own kind of themes and interests to it. But there's there's a lot of at work in this, and in, in addition to trying to you know stage this very difficult, um, I mean, highly enjoyable but elusive uh, piece of medieval poetry and and narrative in a way that uh, is cinematic, but also like connects to some pretty contemporary themes uh, a little bit of 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 the, of the environment uh, gender roles uh, there's a lot there's a lot going on in this on this film and it's just gorgeous to look at too I, i've there's sequences in this movie that i i can't necessarily even claim to understand what was going on at times but uh they're so gorgeous to look at and just kind of kind of uh, uh rapturously uh, shot as as just as pieces of of, of cinema i I'm, I'm a big fan of this one i i always you know i never know quite what to expect from david lowry wouldn't necessarily expect it this, but I'm glad we got it. Tasha, how about you? My number eight is a film you may have heard of by a director you may have heard of once or twice, uh, Wes Anderson's 2021 film, The French Dispatch. A lot of critics kind of decried The French Dispatch as Wes Anderson's worst film or his least film. And I could I can nominally agree with that while still saying that uh, Wes Anderson's least or worst film is still so many cuts above most of what I see in a given year. It's just his filmmaking remains so meticulous, so driven by design and uh, and creativity and making bold choices in terms of how to assemble shots, how to assemble storytelling, how to tell stories, how to persuade his actors to to drop their affect in order to fit into these like intricate little puzzle pieces he created i mean this is another one of those movies where practically everybody's in it you've got uh tilda swinton and francis mcdormand timothy chalamet jeffrey wright jeffrey wright is a real standout in this movie he's amazing bill murray benicio del toro adrian brody uh leah Sado. just like it's one of those things where every time somebody pops up on the screen you have to take a second to ask yourself is this somebody i know is it somebody i know from a, a previous uh wes anderson film and how are they going to fit into the 
puzzle that's being assembled here. In this case, the puzzle being a series of short stories reputedly being reported in a an obscure French periodical based on the New Yorker and kind of toned after the New Yorker as well. This left me a little cold in the theater, and I finally figured out it was because it just moves so quickly that like I was so busy paying attention to all of the intricate designs and uh, the color schemes and just how fast the story works that I didn't have time for the emotions of it to catch up with me at all. And it took a while to sink in. But I ended up kind of loving that about this movie. The, the fact that it's not something you're done with the moment you walk out of the theater. You know, it's like... If you've ever eaten something that has a complex enough flavor profile that the flavors hit you in differing waves over like a moment or so after you put it in your mouth, that's a Wes Anderson film for me. And it hits in different layers. <laughs> you're you're eating a parfait uh, to get all Shrek on it. And it's just got layers and layers all the way down. But some of it is just like lively and vivid and dryly hilarious in the moment. Again, Jeffrey Wright's performance and, and role in particular, really a standout for that. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, I'm not the world's biggest fan of, but I really kind of loved him in this film. Uh, there's just all sorts of little, uh, little interesting and memorable standouts. And of course, it's just one of those films that you feel like you have to see two or three times to, to really have seen it. And in, in this age of like super disposable, hyper fast culture, I just kind of really love that. So, uh, yeah, that's my number eight, the French dispatch. Uh, Scott, you're nodding again. I am nodding because uh, your reaction to the French dispatch describes my reaction to every single Wes Anderson film <laughs> to the point where I, uh, where I just should anticipate that I'm going to have the second, the second viewing reaction and just put it on my list. And I, unfortunately, I just saw The French Dispatch once, but I, I suspect all, that part is true because his films are so densely detailed, but also very efficient and very precise in their effect. And so a lot of stuff whizzes by you because, you know, movies can move pretty fast. And, when you're saying uh, crazy? Yeah. I liked the movie. I liked, I liked it quite a bit. I gave it a, a really strong review. I did a little less the second time I saw it. <laughs> like, oh. I, 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 th I thought it would all deepen for me, but but uh, it was really the Jeffrey Wright section that's really still the, the heart of that, of that movie. In particular, his performance, because I'm actually not even sure that the narrative that he's a part of is, is the strongest narrative in the film. But, but that character and his performance and the one... It's gut wrenching little monologue he has about being a writer in uh, in, a, in another uh, in another country. Uh, or is it, you know, yeah, to me, it's reason enough to see the movie alone, which I which I like. I like which I, again, I do like. But anyway, carry on. Carry on. Yes. <laughs> no, no, I absolutely get that. It definitely takes a while with a Wes Anderson movie to decide whether you've been, you know, baffled by bullshit or dazzled by design. And uh, it, it takes a while for it to sink in. But again, I love that. You know, it's just it's like reading a, uh, a Michael Chabon novel. There's just always that feeling of there's a lot here and I'm going to have to take a little time with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, given that we've all had a little time to to take it in but uh you know we're all still sitting with it i think we're gonna take a brief break here and just take another moment to breathe in the french dispatch and we'll see if when we come back it's uh miraculously settled onto uh, one of your top 10 lists where it wasn't previously i'm not holding my breath for that but uh you know we can all take a little more time to consider where we put everything and how we feel about it before we get back with the second half of our bottom half of our top 10 films of 2021 right after this
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, Scott, what is your number seven movie of the year? Uh, my number seven movie is called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. This is a film by Ryuzuki Hamaguchi, and uh, there may be be another film of his on my list as well. This is, uh, I wrote, wrote a, a piece for the reveal called The Year of Hamaguchi. Uh, I'd never seen his work before. He had done films like Happy Hour and Asaka 1 and 2. Uh, he just happened through, you know, COVID really to have two movies <laughs> released in the same year. Uh, they both really knocked me out. This is uh, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy. is the ostensibly more minor of the two, but not really. It is still major. It is a is it's a triptych of short films that altogether equal equal a solid two hours, and uh, you know they they seem to take place in the same universe, and they and they all have elements of coincidence and chance. I mean, in a way that makes you think of say Kieslowski, I suppose. But he's got his own style. It's hard for me to really get into a lot of detail because each of these stories has its has their own life. But suffice to say, I, you know, I find all three transfixing. And in the second one in particular, you know, if it were a standalone movie, would would be my favorite movie of the year. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy by uh, Rizuki Hamaguchi. Uh, uh, that's my number seven. Uh, Keith, what about you? Uh, my number seven is a film called Bergman Island by uh, Mia Hansen Love, a, a director uh, whose work we've en en enjoyed in the past. I like this one quite a bit. Uh, it stars uh, Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth as, as a couple, a couple of filmmakers who go to Faro Island, where, where uh, one Ingmar Bergman uh, lived and spent much of his life uh, and made some films like Persona on a kind of working holiday and kind of maybe hope w whether they're, you know, admitting it or not to draw some inspiration from being in this this place where a great filmmaker uh lived and worked and and uh it's very uh, subtle it's a very subtle film uh it's it's uh it's a it's it works really well as a character study with with those two actors but at a certain point a sort of film within a film overtakes it and becomes in a very not like a in a in a direct charlie kaufman uh way but it becomes a film about the thin line between fiction and fantasy and and the creative process and it kind of builds to this really kind of, for want of a better word uh a neat uh kind of uh, final gesture i guess is the word not twist but just sort of a really playful and mysterious and exciting kind of kind of final uh device that's brought in i i like this one a lot uh you know i i'd um I'd, I'd, i would uh i think it's on hulu so it's pretty easy to, to or will be soon so it's pretty easy to track down yeah that's really high on my list of movies that i regret not making it to because i i feel like above everything else especially in this day and age like the primary purpose of the responsible critic uh, is to direct people towards awesome stuff that they might overlook otherwise. And that film, I think, is maybe 
would hit the number one on my list this year of movies that seemed to fly under the radar and that yet that critics just absolutely swooned for. Mm-hmm. And I, I really regret not making it uh, there. So I'm, I'm glad it's on your list. I, I feel like it it seems like it's a tremendous thing that really could use the the boostage uh, because it seems like something people aren't going to find unless <laughs> actively curated there. Yeah, I mean though it's her that's her English language debut, I guess. So it has kind of and it's got stars in it, I guess. I mean, I I I, lo- I really like it too. So so I was happy to to see it here. And I feel like I hadn't seen Mia Wasikowska in a while, who's who's Terrific. main the the uh, character in the the film within a film. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, she's 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 really good. And it's, it's a uh, you know she she'd done things like Crimson Peak and some other things, but it feels like this is sort of like a, a grown-up role for her after, after being, you know, primarily known as a, as a, uh, a, a you know, teen actor or, or sort of a younger person actor. Anyway, anyway young, the young folks, <laughs> <laughs> Tasha, how, what's your number seven? Oh, my number seven is uh, also a movie about the young folks and what they're up to these days. Oh, no, wait. It's exactly the opposite <laughs> of that. It's uh, Michael Cernoski's Pig, uh, starring Nicolas Cage uh, in another one of my my favorite roles of the year. This is another movie that I definitely would not have made time for if not for the the seemingly not universal acclaim uh, that it received, you know, because Nicolas Cage puts out, uh, you know, between three and uh, 11 billion movies a year. And most of the reaction to them tends to revolve around uh, just how baloney bonkers he gets in a, a given movie. And this movie weirdly seemed to kind of garner that same reaction, you know, people talking about his performance, which kind of led me astray when I actually sat down to watch it because I was expecting uh, something crazy out of him instead of what I got, which is just this kind of banked threat of like Nicolas Cage craziness might happen at any moment. I almost feel like that's a, a spoiler just in terms of how this movie unfolds. It was pitched to me as John Wick with much less stylized shoot 'em ups. It's about a man living in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in the backwoods with a truffle pig. And then his truffle pig gets kidnapped and he, he goes after the people who stole his truffle pig. But it winds up being a story that's just more or less about how we create ourselves and what it means that we choose to create ourselves in certain ways and what it means to our our dreams and to other people's lives as we keep redefining ourselves. It's just a gorgeously shot movie. It's really, really well constructed. And there's a sequence in it where a Nicolas Cage just sits and quietly talks to a restaurateur that uh, has has just come up over and over and over in discussion this year because it so neatly and concisely sums up the compromises we all make to get along in this world and just a really profound and painful, but, but really pretty smart way. Alex Wolf, who plays opposite uh, Nicholas Cage, I think is a, a tremendous presence in this movie. And it's just sheer unexpectedness on every level is, is really memorable. So yeah, a big critics darling this year, probably not surprising to see it turning up on lists, but this is what turned up on number seven on my list pig. It may come up again in some future conversation. 
<laughs> they, it just, it just might. It just might. Yeah. That's always good to know. Well, in that case, we should probably uh, speed the plow, as it were. Scott, what is number six on your list? Uh, my number six is Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, memory, I guess, of the of uh, 1973 in the Valley. This is a film. I guess you would compare it to something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or you can compare it to Days to Confuse, or something. You know, a, a filmmaker who is really trying to capture the vibe, particular vibe of an era, and do, does so in kind of a sneakily sad way, even though the movie itself is immensely funny and entertaining and, and seemingly light as Licorice Pizza is. This is a part of the map that Paul Thomas Anderson has full claim to. This is an area that he continues to visit and revisit in his work in new and exciting ways. Uh, and I think, well, you know, as I saw this film, I've seen it a couple of times. And what really kind of got to me the second time was was how much of it, it is about Alana Haim, uh, her, her character is in her mid-20s, who has a relationship of sorts with, uh, you know, a 15-year-old played by Cooper Hoffman. And, 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 and how this movie's about the state of being a young woman in her twenties and the, in their mid twenties and the, in the seventies. And I think, I think anybody at that age experiences a kind of drift can experience a kind of drift, you know, particularly at a time, you know, when you're, when you're a woman in changing times and, and, and roles of roles are shifting and different things are being expected of you. I mean, you might be expecting different things of herself and, but right at, at this particular moment, this character is uh, completely rudderless and clinging to the, to the one person who seems even tolerable to be around. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, 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 you know, and I found it just full of surprise. I mean, it's a very anecdotal, episodic type of type of movie so i kind of savored a lot of the little bits and pieces of it the performances by people like bradley cooper and by uh, you know benny safty and sean penn and other other folks like that and uh you know the music and just just being immersed in that world it felt great it felt like you know it felt like it's it, it truly kind of an altman-ish film you know altman demi Ashby, whoever you want to compare it to. I just I just kind of love being in the world of this movie. So that was my number six, Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza is my number one film of the year for I can't believe we didn't find time to discuss it because <laughs> there's there's so much to say about it. And I would love to just devolve this podcast into let's talk about Licorice Pizza. But I hear that we should just move on to Keith's next one. Scott, I uh, took that football out of your hand, but uh, here, I'll, I'll hand it back. Yeah, I mean, no one's going to really say anything about it again. But yeah, fine. Uh, Keith, what, what's your number six? Well, it's a very, it's a film that reminded me a lot of uh, the work of Jonathan Demi in particular. It's a, just a certain like a vibe and sort of a community and, <laughs> and the stakes sometimes seems low, but it's, it's the Chris Pizza actually. Uh, <laughs> a film I, I enjoyed uh, immensely. Uh, well, for some of those reasons in particular, there's a generosity of spirit to it without any sort of illusions about how crappy people can be and how the world can be. And I, I do think you kind of nailed it where these are these are two people that really don't fit together, but there's something there that makes them like each other more than anybody else around them. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm looking forward to seeing it again because it does just kind of drift from incident to incident. But I also kind of 
get a sense of a, of a, of a pattern forming over time, even if, if uh, Anderson's not that, you know, emphatic about, about making connections or, or, or drawing them together into, into, you know, what's it called? A story. Um, but, but it all, to me, for me, it all came together at the end and, and I do just love the vibe of it. And there's, and there's a whole, there's a sequence like set it like a, a teen fest, uh, where it's like sort of all like sort of like anything that might be of pop culture of interest, uh, to teens, which is based on a real thing that I was kind of looking forward to going through and freeze framing to see all the little <laughs> pop culture references that are in it as well but uh i mean i love the little bits of history like you know the coming of of pinball to california after being mm-hmm. banned or Los legalized Angeles. <laughs> yeah uh and uh, the you know the the introduction of the waterbed the wonder of the ages that like no one ever uses anymore <laughs> but but is, is 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 really um nicely employed here but uh no I, i'm a big fan of this movie i'm looking like i said looking forward to revisiting it tasha what is your number six is it licorice pizza it's licorice pizza right it's super not licorice pizza. I really strongly disliked that I movie. I know you did. We knew that. We knew that going on. I'm trying, I'm trying to just push you past so you don't spoil the good vibes here. No. But I'm 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 not going to try to bring the room down because both because this is this uh, bottom half of the list has been a surprising love fest with a uh, you know much much less of our usual animosity and disagreement. I will just say this about licorice pizza: a lot of I really thought the structure was interesting. I don't think I fully appreciated it until I afterwards like started looking into when exactly all of these events happened. Like when was the legalization of pinball machines in California? When was the particular oil embargo and subsequent gasoline drought that is is featured in the movie and so, so forth and so on? All of these events are drawing a specific timeline that is leading Cooper Hoffman's character from the 15-year-old hitting on a 25-year-old up to being an 18-year-old so we can, in theory, cheer for their relationship at long last. But I spent too much of the movie just finding it creepy, finding it creepy how they're jealous of each other and cruel to each other, how they lead each other on and push each other away. I didn't find it romantic at all. And I've been trying really hard to come to terms with the fact that this is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie about two extremely unpleasant people whose relationship seems seems toxic and they don't work together, but they move towards each other that I did not like when that exact same dynamic made Phantom Thread one of my favorite movies of its year. You know, those those two movies are set in such different times and places, but in terms of the structure, in terms of the relationships, in terms of the mechanics, they're so similar. I adored Phantom Phantom Thread. And this one just really got my back up in all the wrong ways. And it's it's mostly over that age difference. So I guess I'm well, just curious. I'm going to make you feel worse because I'm pretty sure it all takes place in 1973, Tasha. The, the mayoral race, uh, which uh, Joe Wax was, was running was, uh, for the first time of his of his uh, three runs for mayor was 1973. No, I, I, I sat down and mapped it. Uh, it's That movie is, as near as I can tell, meant to be leading us through a, a three-year real-life timeline, which one of my quibbles with it as a, an actual film is that it doesn't communicate that particularly well. Like, <laughs> it's all taking place in a, a sort of California perma summer where time never really seems to pass except through anecdotes and incidents. But I'm, I'm pretty sure by the end of the film, he's meant to be uh, not 15 anymore, which is, I think, very important. I don't know. See, I love these characters and love and actually felt great affection for them as people. Ditto the people in Phantom Thread. 
So well, I don't know. I just I don't mind characters who, you know, don't always do the right thing and are flawed and have problems. And 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 as long as they're engaging, I mean, obviously, I like them more than you did. I mean, if you don't like people, you don't like them. But uh, I was on board with this film from the very beginning. I obviously it made my it's number six on, my, on a, a list of uh, films for a year that I find quite strong. So uh, I like it. Well, I think we can compromise on this. At least I think Cooper Hoffman is not just a tremendous talent, but kind of an eerie talent because he so physically resembles a very young version of uh, his father, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And his affect is so similar. His acting is so similar. I really feel in a in a both uncomfortable and, and pleased sort of way that we might end up seeing a tremendous acting career out of him sort of in replacement of his father's that was cut tragically short. And Alana Haim, I think, is also a first-time actress, like, leading this film. She's she's a real find. She's, she's got so such good. an energy to her and such a specificity to her. So I don't care for the script. I don't care for the the story. The two leads, I think, are great. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to, to their reteaming for Licorice Pizza 2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be first in line next to Tasha for that one. Uh, We're of Tasha, age now. So Licorice Age 2. <laughs> you, you've of got age. a number six that I have a feeling it's not Licorice Pizza. What, what is it? It is not Licorice Pizza. It's Judas and the Black Messiah, which had a weird sort of life, given that it it came out so long ago at the very beginning of the year. But then it was eligible for the awards ceremony, the Academy Awards ceremony that we had this year, because they moved their qualification date to February and had the awards in April. So it feels like we're a full year behind on this one, but it is actually a, a fully legit 2021 release. This is the movie starring Daniel Kaluuya and uh, Lakeith Stanfield as Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill in the midst of a growing era of power for the Black Panthers. Uh, Fred Hampton pretty famously murdered by the FBI for his success in organizing the Black Panthers. And Bill O'Neill was the mole that they slipped into the Black Panthers to watch Hampton and inform on him. This is a movie that, according to qualify, like awards qualifications, has no lead actor, just two supporting actors in Stanfield and Cleo, which is such a strange thing. But watching the film, you can you can sort of see it. It's a, a real two-hander. There's both of them are so crucial to the story and both of them give just such mesmerizing performances as one as this firebrand who is tremendous at organization and and speeches and rallying people but knows full well that he's painting a target on himself with every word out of his mouth and that he really is unlikely to live to middle age let alone a ripe old age and one of them as a man who doesn't have any convictions until he starts to have convictions and then he doesn't know where to put them because those convictions could land him in jail or worse. It's mesmerizing history. You know, uh, I crap a lot on uh, biopic style films on this show just because they warp the reality of uh, history so much. 
in trying to to shape them into a, a palatable and uh, convincing story. But uh, the story, it's so palatable. It's so convincing. It's <laughs> so, so driving and intense and emotional and relevant. I ended up just really loving this, uh, this movie. So um, yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah is my number six. Yeah, I, I like that movie a lot too. And, and I, when we did our, our honorable mentions, I was going to say, I just didn't know where to put it, whether it was this year or last year. And I just kind of ended up, there's just so many other things to choose from. I ended up just, you know, putting it and the father, another kind yeah. of late release qualifier off into the 2020 box uh, to make room for more 2021 stuff. But yeah, I, I second your recommendation. It's, it's a really good one. Yeah. The father was mine. My kind of like, it fell between the cracks. What year is this type of pick as well? Cause that's one I missed for last year. And it, I didn't put it on this list, uh, even though it absolutely blew me away. And seeing mm-hmm. it, I thought like, oh, it, sh- it was the best of the best picture nominees, in my opinion. And and uh, Anthony Hopkins fully deserving of best actor. Uh, you know, not to take anything away from Chadwick Boseman, who's also excellent, but it's not like it was like his was doing crappy work. So so it's weird how that happens every year. There's just these kind of films that don't that got a nominal you know, release and then don't really get released until the following year. Just like, where do you put that? It's frustrating for for people who uh, make lists <laughs> like us. Well, that honestly wraps us back around to the top of the show where we talked about uh, what a weird year 2021 was in terms of how things were released, when they were released, what it meant to be released in 2021. We're not going to do a feedback section on this half of this episode, uh, but we very much welcome your feedback on what did actually come out in 2021 and how did you feel about it? What's on your list? We are interested in hearing from you about the films on the bottom half of our top 10 list, about the films on the top half of your top 10 list, and on the uh, the ever-going question, uh, is, is The Father a 2021 release or a 2020 <laughs> release, and does it belong on these lists? We do appreciate when you share your thoughts and recommendations with us. So uh, leave us a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That'll wrap us up for this half of our top 10 list of 2021 movies. On our next episode, uh, we'll get into the top five. You could have just skipped this entire episode if you wanted to pretend that we only did a top five list this year. But apparently you like film more than that, and we appreciate it. So you can look for that episode next Tuesday or subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear this podcast without ads while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show content, Come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, keep your top 10 lists carefully organized, people. You never know when something's going to spontaneously drop on or off them. Thank you.